Melody. Hey, Peter. What's up, Drew? Hey. Welcome to How College Works. Today we have a very special guest. Special guest, please introduce yourself. Hi, um, my name is Peter Timby, and I am a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I teach physics here, and I do research in physics and astrophysics. And I've been here for a little over 20 years, so I've had quite a bit of um, experience at the university and, and working with students. Uh, before coming here, I taught for a number of years at, at uh, a smaller school at Brown University. So I've got, um, I think, an interesting perspective on, on different kinds of, um, of college and university experiences. Absolutely. And, of course, I just have enough draw that I can tap tenured professors at major institutions. Um, no, actually, Peter was my thesis advisor, so he was the one who made sure that I actually got my Ph.D. thesis in order and out the door. Um, yeah. And you did, and we're very proud of you. <laughs> so, because we have a professor at a major R1 university, and listeners to the entire oeuvre of our podcast might uh, notice that Peter said he is professor of physics, which means that he is, you, you have full tenure. Right? You, you have gone from assistant to associate to full professor. Is that correct? That, that's right. I've gone through all the different levels. So, um, yeah, so I yeah, started as an assistant professor, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, which is a process that uh, in most pla uh, places takes about seven years. Um, and then um, and at the end of that, I became uh, tenured. So um, basically, they gave me security to uh, work on any research I wanted and um, teach any way I wanted to. So I guess a demonstration that the university had some confidence in, in um, my judgment and um, and so now, yeah. So now I'm a full professor, which is um, which is great. It gives me um, lots of flexibility, um, and I, it's it's um, you know a major goal of, of of faculty to get to such a position to in order to uh, have some freedom and, and flexibility in what they're doing. So you just walk around slapping graduate students now. Uh, I could, <laughs> but but things have changed since you were here, Peter. <laughs> I, I, I don't do that as much as I used to. You, There's a little uh, verbal abuse. No, no we, we aim to be pleasant and, uh, and, and create a, a supportive learning environment here. That's, that's true. That was my experience anyway. Though I feel like I might have had some cohorts who were n not so. Uh, did not have quite as smooth an experience, but... That's probably their own fault. <laughs> I mean, we can always blame the victim. That is always an option. I don't know. You signed up for grad school. I did sign up for grad school. <laughs> so I have a question. I'm going to take us off topic already. Um, so typically you get tenure and you move from assistant to associate, and so you're already tenured when you move up to full professor. I'm assuming there's a raise involved, but what other kinds of perks do you get in terms of transitioning between associate and full professor? Oh, that's a, it's an interesting question. There's not a whole lot. I, I, think, I think really what happens, um, it, it, it's 
in the in academia, it, it, if people who don't move up that next next notch, then then there's it kind of says something about them uh, that, that's not good. So, um, but I then you can't get rid of them. Yeah, you st- still can't get rid of them. But um, there's there's some, there's the university and the department that I'm in you use that as kind of a carrot or a stick or something to make sure people stay productive. Mm. So you know, so if your teaching falls apart or you you know suddenly stop. Uh, publishing or, or coming up with uh, new ideas, then in principle you wouldn't be allowed to make that next advancement. But it's um, and so that and that would be awkward if you you know you got to be as old as I am and not not be there. Uh, but that happens very rarely. Mm. The, the big transition is the is the one where you transition from assistant to associate professor. At least that's that's the way it works at most most schools. That that that's the step where you become tenured and and um, yeah, pretty much they, they can't get rid of you. Uh, it's a statement of confidence, is what I like to think. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So, as a professor at like a giant school, since I went to grad school there, like. UW-Madison school, uh, just campus is huge, although, of course, I spent almost all my time in, like, you know, 200 square feet or something of space. Uh, what's your day like? Like, what do you do? Because, I mean, I'll, I'll, for our listeners, the secretiveness unintentionally of, of faculty is such that, as a graduate student, we had no idea what you were doing unless you were scheduled to teach a class, and then we would try to catch you before you had class, which of course you didn't want us to do because you had to prepare for class. You know, and then eventually I think Melissa, our, our postdoc, ratted you out, that uh, told us where you were hiding, and then we would go, <laughs> then we would go ask you questions. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, what is your day like? Because I never knew. Yeah, okay, well I can tell you all about it. So, so part of it actually uh, really is trying to manage my time, because I have uh, draws in many different directions. So, you know, so on the the one one side, um, I'm, you know, I have a I'm teaching, and that means um, usually large classes. So, uh, and so that means a lot of time organizing things, um, um, a lot of things outside of the the class time. Uh, so it's it's actually uh, in a given week. Uh, only uh, typically three hours of face-to-face time in front of students or working with students to, um, in a classroom setting, which doesn't seem like much, but there's a lot of time uh, behind the scenes um, organizing the class, um, preparing lectures, uh, checking out the, all the different parts of the course, like the homework and the reading and, and so on, to make sure that it's, it's all going to work. Um, and also, and I, I think, in my experience, like managing TAs, because the grading happens from the TAs, and they have to do discussion sections, and so there's like weekly meetings where you have to make sure all the TAs are doing it the way it's supposed to be done, and they get all their grades in and stuff like that. You really, you're kind of like, you're a manager. That's a good way to put it. It's a lot of management, a lot of management responsibilities. So, yeah, so for a, a typical class that I'm teaching these days, which has uh, four or five hundred students, uh, there's I have a there's a team of maybe eight graduate students that I have to 
I have to work with, so I'm spending um, maybe a couple hours a week with them, helping them uh, develop and, and making sure that they're getting across the, uh, the message that I want in, in their, their parts of the course, the discussions that they lead, discussion sections or um, lab sections, since it's a laboratory um, science that we're doing. So, uh, yeah, so those are, those are things that the typical student wouldn't see directly, and uh, you wouldn't have seen, Peter, uh, because I, you know, those things were just going on in different places, and um, um, so a lot of meetings, I guess, is one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so that's, you know, so that's one part of my time. Um, the other part is, is research-related, and so that involves uh, lots of different things. So for me, that means meeting with graduate students like Peter and others uh, a few times a week. Um, and so I tend to try to schedule those times so that I'm guaranteed to, to be able to interact with um, my, my graduate students and other researchers, which include maybe uh, postdocs, Mm -hmm. people who have their PhDs who are um, really focusing on research rather than educating themselves. And then we, um, I always like to have um, a small team of undergraduates involved, as you may remember. And, Absolutely. And so try to meet with them as well. So, so, and everybody's got different needs, so sometimes just a single meeting with a bunch doesn't work very well and, and um, you know I might need some extra time to help help uh, a student with a particular project uh, that they're working on in the lab um, and so but the, the research side of things can go on to all sorts of other things including traveling to conferences or to um, telescopes in my case since it's astrophysics that I mostly do that often involves um, a trip to an observatory or um, these days, increasingly, uh, time on telecons. Uh, <laughs> because the general trend in science, anyway, is that research teams have grown. Mm -hmm. And um, in order to stay in contact and keep a, a big organization uh, working smoothly, it takes a lot, of, a lot of talking, mainly on the phone. Yes, I, I recall that from when I was a postdoc, and I was working in a lab that was using uh, building and maintaining technology used in three different international collaborations. So there was a lot of time spent on telecoms and a lot of time also spent figuring out like can we get the people in Germany and Japan on the line at the same time. Which, right. Which so was hard. Right. <laughs> telecoms often are at bizarre, bizarre times. Um, yeah, because of because of that. Although it, I mean, it's pretty cool to, you know, start the day. Like actually, I did just this morning. I, I came in and at eight o'clock, um, I was on the phone with uh, nine people from China and nine people from the U.S. And um, you know, uh, that that uh, that's kind of fun. That international part of research is, I think, pretty cool. Absolutely. And do you also, so we've talked on the podcast a little bit about, the, you know, what goes into tenure, like the research, teaching, and service. Do you have, like, what, I'm going to assume that you do have service duties. What does that look like for you? 
Yeah, so I didn't talk about that uh, because that's, it tends to be uh, a little bit irregular. Uh, you know, sometimes I have a lot of those duties and, and other weeks not so much. Um, for me, the, uh, that has been kind of an extension of my teaching. So I have been, my, my main departmental uh, service uh, position over the last couple of years has been to uh, basically rebuild our largest undergraduate physics course, the introductory course that, um, that I happen to be teaching uh, at the moment. And so that involved working with um, a team of a number of people, physics education um, research people, as well as other instructors in the course, uh, some grad students who had some extra time. And so that, that I would say, has added up to maybe five hours a week, uh, generally, over the last couple of years. And uh, I'm just coming to towards the end of that because we are we are now this fall deploying. That's kind of a strange expression, but anyway, we, we are turning on this this big course, uh, which we've test run many times, but we're now turning it on full scale, uh-huh. and we're going to see how that um, that turns out. I have high hopes, but I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> reasonably so. Reasonably so. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's similar to any like large like, physics experiment where you test it as much as you can, and then you just got to take it out and turn it on, and hope it doesn't blow up. Well, there, there's that, but I, you know, the, the thing that's different here is that there's so many people involved, mm. and in particular, the thing that we're doing that's new is we have new faculty teaching this course, which had been taught by me and a couple of other people who had been working closely together on it. So now. Um, who knows what will happen? Uh, we, we, we tried to tried to make the the course structure such that that a new person wouldn't really want to attempt to change much, but they, <laughs> but they could. Uh, so we didn't want to restrict anybody's freedom because that's a lot of people get into uh, get into teaching because they can do things the way they want to. But uh, in such a large structure. You need some level of teamwork to make things uh, flow well, and so we're going to see whether that that really comes off. Excellent. Well, good luck. I hope it goes well. <laughs> so, thank you. So, Peter, your um, your new program that you're setting up is, uh, I guess my my question is, what uh, the the university must be. Um, what's the word I want, have oversight by some uh, accrediting institution, right? So what, what's the process putting a new course together or revamping, you know, Physics 1, I guess, uh, to, to meet the accreditation requirements? That, that's a really interesting question. Uh, to be honest, we haven't thought about that or, or talked to any accrediting people. Um, I think... Uh, yeah, so, so that, I, you know, the, the, there is a process where, you know, the university, the various departments get um, their programs are evaluated, but there's a lot more flexibility than you might think. I know in our engineering school, uh, the, the outside reviews, the accreditation process is quite strict, 
whereas for us, we have a, a lot of freedom. So I, 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 yeah, it never really, it's, it hasn't come up, and I don't expect that it will. <laughs> that must be nice. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm making a guess that um, it sounds like you have a large, uh, kind of that much of an intro class as a, a lot of undergrad students in it, and the point of making it kind of cohesive is so that anybody who takes first-year physics is going to have a um, relatively similar experience and be able to move forward in the program, right? That, that's the idea. I, th I think, um, I mean, the, the, the course is, there's so many students, and the stakes in some ways are, are so high. That is, we, 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 they really need to succeed at this uh, because it's a prerequisite for lots of different departments. Uh, in particular, students who are interested in going into a health field or you know becoming a doctor, um, they'll tend to go through this course, and they and they have to do well. And we don't want them to get tripped up because somebody uh, chose homework problems that were impossible, or. No, that's for grad school. Yeah, that, right. That happens later. Or, or you know, somebody uh, wrote an exam uh, and it wasn't carefully vetted. And same thing there, that there was problems that couldn't be solved. Um, so in this case, we have we've put the energy into m making sure that, to use the lack of a better word, um, the product is a, is a high quality one. Mm. So they, they give we give up a little bit of flexibility and maybe some you know some innovation on the part of certain instructors, but we end up with something that um, at least a, a group of people who thought hard about how to teach the course think is the the way to do it. Yeah, there's a one thing which I might point out to our listeners is that uh, these the huge these giant classes are almost always not the courses for the major track, but rather the service courses that a department teaches for other majors. So if I remember correctly, this, these, this is the two-course semester sequence, uh, which was like 103, 104 while I was there, which is by, was by far the biggest courses that were being taught and TA'd. Uh, and primarily for, like not just primarily, not for physics majors. They would have taken 207, 208 uh, in their course progression. So these large, courses are like you're really serving a, a major and a, and a population which is not sort of the internal one to the department so it's not your majors aren't usually going through these courses it's usually people who are going to come through and then move on to do something else and so yeah you do you want them to succeed you want them to know your topic but you're not gonna it's it's not quite appropriate to drill them as as deeply as you would for people who are invested in in the subject as a major. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And so there there are equivalent big courses like this, uh, particularly in sciences. Um, so chemistry department would have something like this. Certainly, uh, the, the math um, math department has even bigger courses that are prerequisites for for many majors. And um, yeah, ma the number of majors in these departments is much smaller than the numbers that are going through a course like this and then those students would um, the majors would take other courses where they get more hands-on attention and they would they would be there would be multiple opportunities to learn things whereas this may be the last physics course in most cases will be the last physics course that these students take right 
Yeah, so you kind of want to, yeah, you want a good experience for them because they're going to other departments, but you also, yeah, you also want them to learn some stuff. Yep. So if I ask a sort of a, a question which is kind of related to this, which, which is for you, when do you have the most contact with undergraduates? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, in, the, in the giant course, it, you know, during lecture time, I'm, I'm there, right? I'm in a room with, um, with 300 students. And in, in our case, we, because the room doesn't hold enough students, we just repeat the lecture. So, you know, so in a single day where I'm lecturing, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll see 500 students in, in a couple of hours. But I don't really get to know them there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they see me, and we're trying to teach the course in a way that's more interactive than it used to be. So I'll ask them a lot of questions, and um, and then I'll you know go around the room and try to make a little bit of personal contact. But there's a limit in such a space. So the place where I really see the students the most is in office hours, and um, so and we've. We've come up with a new way to do this, which I think is becoming more popular. So, so sadly, I've found out over the years that students just didn't come to office hours. So these are usually two or three hours a week that um, professors, I think, it may be required. I think We're required. Every, everybody, every professor I know does this. So the post, um, you know, three hours a week where they're guaranteed or at least supposed to be in their office to to talk about anything homework or some other thing and we were we were finding that students just wouldn't go and the the sense i got from talking to some students was they were intimidated they were afraid to come in alone and talk to me and and i i think of myself as a pretty approachable person so i can just imagine the the, you know, the turnout at some of my colleagues' office hours. <laughs> uh, so um, what we've, we've done instead is we, uh, so I still have a couple hours a week where they can do that, but I also have uh, what we call a sort of open help desk time. So mm-hmm. one day a week where um, we, the students can come by and ask questions of me for an hour or so, or one of my colleagues, or the uh, one of the TAs, and so we have a full uh, full day where they can just drop in, ask questions if they've got them of whoever's there, including myself, or uh, work on homework on their own. So it's kind of like a uh, in high school we call that a study hall, but this is an active one where they they're encouraged to talk to people, and that's worked better. So students will come in in maybe in small teams and then and then they then the uh, they they can approach whoever's answering questions uh, without worrying about being on the spot or being all alone hmm. that makes a lot of sense and you get a couple more of me and i could do that <laughs> yeah so well like i say this uh, so so what i've done is i traded in my third sort of uh private office hour time Hmm. For 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 one where it's in a room where lots of students are showing up, and they're not necessarily there to see me, but they can see me, and I think it, it breaks down a barrier that that has been there. Hmm. It's giving me ideas. I think that's, yeah. that's one of those you know, kind of group study skills in in college that I didn't pick up until 
my third or fourth year, and that's that's one of the, the items we brought up on this podcast before is is the idea of getting that um, that group that study group started in first year and second year instead. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good idea, and it um, that's that part of the reason for setting things up like this is to encourage people to find study partners if they don't have any. So a lot of the a lot of the students just don't know anybody else in the class, or certainly when they show up, they don't. But after coming to some of these Friday afternoon um, uh, help desk hours, they. They almost always find somebody who's um, who's showing up at the same time, and then they can build on that. Hmm. So, when you have interaction with students, not just at you know the office hours and the help desk, are there some like common, I guess, mistakes or missteps that that they make? Um, let's see. You mean like in in uh, their their attire? Or their... <laughs> uh, um, we'll throw it open to anything. I'll, although, you know, being, feeling like I'm already a member of the older generation, I don't know if I'm the person to go to for fashion tips. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I try not to criticize people's fashion. Um, but, you know, so actually, that that takes me to a subject which pains me, but I, I, it has to come up sooner or later, and that's email. Okay. Right. So so I guess I, I didn't mention that before, but that's can easily I can easily spend more time on that in a week than anything else, and, so and now, I'm including um, teaching as well as research related emails. Um, so emails from students. Um, often will uh, put me over the edge uh, <laughs> because... I don't know if I've ever seen you over the edge, Peter, but go yeah, ahead. This, this is in the, the, the privacy of my office. Maybe with the closed and I can thump my fist against the table. N- uh, no, don't, don't call me mister. Uh, don't call me... I, so, so, I, the, the, so the, an email from a student should address the instructor as either doctor or professor uh, and then you know ma- many people have are are more informal than that many instructors are more informal than that and but but they will tell you and it may even say that uh, that's a good thing to look for in the syllabus for a course or some mm-hmm. some, some online statement that says something about etiquette and in particular email etiquette but without being that uh, you can call me by my first name uh, for for an undergraduate, um, then you should be more formal. And um, a lot of emails, you know, you can tell the students don't quite know what to say, so they'll just say hi. And that's, you know, that's a that's a step, but it basically is saying, uh, you know, I feel like I could be anybody, and so I'm I'm hoping to be slightly slightly more courtesy in the. Uh, the in the uh, the first line of the email, so that that's one thing that I think is, is hard for students, and it and it, I know is a source of frustration for many mm-hmm. many instructors in um, university. Certainly, one of the things I've I've noticed here, since we have a small faculty, therefore I I know all of the faculty here, and in some of some of the fields, the PhD is not the terminal degree, and MFA might be so. Uh, and so the safest, if they're if they are professor so and so, is to say professor, 
Professor Timby, uh, because maybe you teach in art and in, you have an MFA, so you're not actually Dr. Timby because you don't have a PhD, but you are still a professor because that's your job. So a professor is, if, is usually a, a pretty safe thing to uh, start with when you're addressing one of, one of your professors. <laughs> I, yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And then, yeah, and then, yeah, you let, you let them make the decision uh, about whether to just make it more informal than that or, or not. Unless you have specified that you will be called right, Dr. Yeah. Denny, which I do. Sure. Um, and then also you could whip out the syllabus and check. Right. <laughs> if, 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 if pretty much if I put in, I mean, I think. I might figure what I actually put in my syllabus, but if I say Dr. Peter Highland, that's what mine says. Yeah, then well, it's appropriate, right? <laughs> it's appropriate to call me Dr. Highland. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a little bit, a little bit of, yeah, just a little bit of courtesy there or awareness, I think, is really important. Because uh, you know, if you're an incoming student, you don't want to be pissing off the, you know, somebody who's going to be trying to help you for several months. That's true. Is it? I mean, is it fair to say that um, that the college professors are, are going to not not just in the syllabus, for sure, certainly in the syllabus, but also on the first day of class, say, you know, if you need to contact me, here's my email. Uh, you know, you can reach me, Dr. Highland, blah blah blah. It, and and that is because this to me is is begging the question, like, when is this expected to be taught? I know manners mm. used to be, and etiquette and email used to be. Uh, differently taught and, and it's starting to be brought back I think in like a digital citizenship style of curriculum that's more recognized even by K, K-12 teachers that we need to address it but where is this you know where is this taught or is it just expected to be absorbed by 18 year olds? Well a little bit of both for me for one I tell my students what they should call me on the first day I do as well. And then I probably because of this podcast, I go into even the specific specifics of how do you know how to address your professors. And then, so I tell them, but not everybody does. And then I do my best whenever they email me to, I reply to them the way I want them to address me originally. So if it's like, Hey, then I don't, I'm not hanging them back. I'm like, Dear Peter, comma, thank you for your email, you know, and then I say, you know, thank you, and I'll sign Dr. Denny. And sometimes, so they'll pick up on it, but there'll be times when I've had an exchange with the same student, like seriously, 10 times, and I've done that every time, and she will still be like, thanks, nothing else. Yeah, yeah. I've seen this, yeah, same thing. But I think it, it does, it does, um, does help to be quite explicit. And so, I, yeah, I, I think there is no, no single place where students learn this, and so the yeah, first day um, setting the tone is a good idea. Except for here, I'm the director of the Writing Center, and next week we have a workshop called How to Write Professional Emails, because it's become such an issue with my colleagues that I thought, well, that I'm going to do a workshop on it so that students can get some clarification. Mm, that's a good idea. I will talk that up in my class. As you should. I sent the email yesterday. Hello. I may not have read it yet. Right. Email. So much. So as Peter said, so much email. So much email. Yeah. So, is there is there any like insight that you would like to impart to our listeners, to possible students talking to other, particularly you know, big university professors in you know how do you approach uh, 
professor? Like, how, how can they tame a professor successfully? Yeah, well, the, fir the first thing is to, uh, to, to approach, that is to, to, to take the initiative to come to office hours, or um, I think less good is, is email, but oftentimes that's the most efficient way to do things. Uh, but I, but to take uh, take the initiative and um, come to office hours, or um, uh, you know, come up after class and um, spend a few minutes just chatting. Uh, and it's, I mean, you know, it, it, you know, people who who are teaching for a living are you know want to interact with students, and I think students are often a, don't quite get that message. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of faculty give the, maybe give the wrong signs, but not, not usually not on purpose, right? It's uh, it, and and so um, in order to sort of, I guess I, I tell my own kids this, who are in their college age, that um, you know, in order to take advantage of their investment in in education, they should think of how to be a good consumer. And one one way is to um, is to make contact with um, um, instructors, and it uh, it doesn't have to be an onerous thing. It, it, uh, it, you know, it, it's meant to be fun. Right. I might point out uh, to our listeners my perspective from as a graduate student, and as a graduate student, we're taking classes as well. You have to take at least two years of courses at UW Madison as a physics PhD student. Um, one of the things that was very quickly made clear to us is that the professors who are good at teaching teach the undergrads. So, and that's generally people who want to do the teaching, whereas the professors who are not good teachers, sometimes because they don't care, sometimes because they try but just are not very good, they teach the graduate students because the graduate student, no one really, no one really cares too much if the graduate student's instructor is not great. You expect the graduate students to sort of make up the difference and work on, on their own and sort of get to where they need to be. So one of the things which uh, I don't think Hollywood has helped us with is that we have this stereotype of professor which is very standoffish and very aloof and looks down their nose at everybody else. Uh, at a big university, at a big, uh, it's probably the case that the, the professor is teaching uh, undergraduate courses or even the big you know, intro courses, they probably want to be doing this. They probably, like you say, want to have contact with the students. Otherwise, they could just phone it in and teach grad courses, or in some colleges and universities, they could just buy out their teaching uh, um, requirement. They can take some of their funds from grants and literally pay the college to hire someone else to do it. And yes, and that uh, occasionally does happen. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think I think there, there, there are these barriers that make it um, maybe a little awkward, of, both for these students and for instructors. Um, so one, of course, is enormous class size. Uh, you t tend to see that, um, you know, in big big schools like like mine. It's just not unusual to have a a course where the uh, the professor isn't going to know your name, right? It's just—it's not going to happen with that many students, and and so um, so there's the class size, but um, but, but uh, it, it's also um, an age. You know, there's usually going to be an age difference of um, quite a few years, 
and uh, I see this more and more, right? I'm getting to be, uh, you know, I'm now much older, almost three times as old as mm. most of my students. And so, um, you know, that, 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 that's a, that's a, that's something to be overcome, right? Just to, just to, uh, to feel comfortable with each other. And it, but it is possible, right? Uh, as, as you say, um, uh, people don't teach these courses unless they like to usually. Any other questions? I thought I had one, but now it's not here. <laughs> Drew, any questions from I'm, you? I'm still thinking. Okay. <laughs> any, I mean, I, I have something I wanted to bring up. Sure, um, please. That, uh, so, so we, I, I mentioned earlier on that there are undergrads who work in my lab, uh, as you know, Peter, and um, so I, you know, not everybody going to college is, is, is interested in uh, becoming a research scientist, right? There's, um, but in many fields, there are opportunities to work with faculty on research or, or other things on, um, you know, things on topics, uh, sort of professional topics related to their major. And, and these are great things to get involved in. Um, they're, you know, they're, so I, I hate it when I see students uh, say, in order to, to try to make a little money uh, to, um, uh, you know, end up working in the library or washing dishes or something. Actually, working in the library is not a bad thing to do, but uh, say washing <laughs> dishes, whereas they, they might be able to find something a little more interesting to do in a, um, it's connected with, with an academic field. So, um, it's uh, uh, there they can be much closer to um, faculty and um, other students and sort of break down the barriers uh, by by working in a small small team on mm -hmm. a project that's pretty closely supervised by a professor. So how do they get involved in that kind of stuff? Is it as simple as approaching you after class and just expressing an interest, and then maybe whenever applications go out, they pay attention or something like that? Yeah. So so um, yeah, the best way is just to, to uh, try to try to talk to um, the uh, professor after class, um, and it's you know the the range of things that that um, are possible is is pretty huge. So you know I I tend to be looking for physics majors. So it's a, you know pretty narrow uh, range of kinds of skills that I'm looking for to work my lab. But um, but there are other things too, right? There are um, so we often have um, uh, what we call outreach events to um, you know so if, uh, uh, say for an open house in the department where um, families will come in and um, take tours of the labs. And, and so there are projects that I have undergrads work on where they don't have to be thinking about going on to get a PhD in physics to be doing something that's kind of fun and that uh, they, they, their skills could be used at. So yeah, so for them, so it's really just a matter of making a personal, personal connection. Um, so a lot of these kinds of opportunities aren't, you know, there's no formal application. It's just, just a matter of um, just m making um, their interest known. Yeah, when I, I worked in the lab, sorry, go ahead, Drew. My, um, 
music school, we had I had the same opportunity offered to me from the professors to either you know play in an ensemble with the uh, professor, the professors um, quintet, and you know do uh, play at graduation in the band, which was a paid gig. So we were able to do all kinds of uh, thing. And and the the main thing was expressing interest. Uh, and the professors knew what was happening and were able to point me in the direction of, you know, this uh, musical or this, uh, you know, uh, performance that was happening. Yeah, and it's basically my experience as well. Like, I just went in and knocked on doors, it, which was nerve-wracking, <laughs> but I did it, and that's how I got into research as an undergraduate. And that's true for, like, all topics. You don't have to be physics or music for that to happen. Right. Lots of different fields have different opportunities for undergrads. So yeah. if you're sitting over there and you're like, I'm a sociology major, they got stuff going on. Absolutely. And it's, if you know uh, one professor that you're, you're comfortable enough to, you know, breach the topic with, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to work with that professor. Right. You, you know, I'm, I'm sure, Peter, if somebody, a student came and said, I want to work in physics and I want to do like nuclear physics, I think we still have a nuclear physics at UW-Madison, you know, you could point them to who they need to talk to or even make an introduction, uh, even though that's not your, your, your ballywick. Yeah, and in fact, maybe that's, that's the easiest way to bring something up. Um, so it, it means that the, it's just to ask some advice of, you know, where, where as a student, where might I find uh, an opportunity? And so it takes some pressure off of me hearing that to think, oh boy, I've got to find this person a job, or I've got to somehow turn them down gently. But if, um, but it is much easier to give advice. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I would be in a pretty good position to do that because I, you know, by the, by this time I know a lot of people here. It's true. It's true. You are an, an elder statesman of the department. Yes, you could say that. We keep referring to my age, but what, what are we going to do? <laughs> Well, your neighbor, um, Professor McCammon, is he still there? He uh, he is. So and, uh, so you will you will. Is he the eldest? I, I don't know if he's the eldest, but he he predates Peter. I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, we um. So he is. Yeah, I would say he's probably the eldest now. We we recently had somebody retire, in his early 80s. And, um, but this fellow uh, was a remarkable instructor. Uh, so even into his last, last moments in the classroom, I do wonderful um, reviews from students. He's just a really clear, uh, so it was some, some people get worse with age. And they, <laughs> they forget how hard it is to learn some things, and, but in his case, um, did quite well. Well, we are about out of time. Yes. Yeah, so, thank you, Peter, for joining us. It was very informative, even for those of us who are technically professors. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed this too. Uh, listeners, if you want to send us a question, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Highland, D O C T O R H Y L E N D, or you can shoot me an email, peter.o.highland, H Y L A N D, at gmail.com. All right. See you next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>